There is a future beyond shell. It is necessary, overdue and inevitable. In its place, we are building a clean, fair and affordable energy democracy. Get ready. Oil and gas major shell has contributed significantly to the climate crisis. It has long impeded a just transition away from fossil fuels. But what are the pathways to a future beyond Shell? If we are serious about putting a stop to the polluting colonial capitalist company, we need to take a good look at the options. Bankrupting, carbon pricing, suing, nationalizing. What can we achieve with these strategies? Welcome to the Future Beyond Shell podcast, in which we explore potential pathways to responsibly dismantle Shell as we know it. We are your hosts, Archina Ramanujan and Marisol Reindl. In this episode and the next few, we are taking a break from looking at economic, political and legal tools to wind down a fossil fuel company like Shell. Instead, we're going to take a slightly different approach. We'll be taking stock of a few major events in recent months and how they have affected Shell and the oil and gas sector at large. We want to understand what these events mean for strategies to dismantle Shell. Today, we'll talk about the fact that Shell moved its headquarters to the UK in January of 2022. With this move, the company is now called Shell PLC instead of Royal Dutch Shell. However, The biggest change associated with this shift of headquarters is that the fiscal residency of the company will move from the Netherlands to the UK. In other words, UK law will now determine taxes over profits, rules for issuing shares, and other financial decisions that the company makes. But what does this actually mean for the company and its shareholders? And more importantly, what does this mean for movements against Shell? and for the project of dismantling Shell. To answer these questions, we also need a little bit of knowledge about how Shell and multinationals in general operate and what their business structure looks like. So to tackle these questions, we are going to speak to experts. We will speak with Olin Ravaggio Suraju, anti-corruption campaigner and chairman of the NGO Header Resource Center, or the Human and Environmental Development Agenda. We will also be speaking to Nicholas Hilliard, founder of The Corner House, a research and advocacy organization that advances environmental and social justice by supporting democratic and community movements. They have worked extensively on a court case against Shell and the Italian oil and gas company Eni. They are suing the companies for corruption in the process of acquiring the oil field OPL245, an offshore oil field in the Niger Delta region. Before sharing the conversation we had with Nick and Ulan Ravaju, or Lare as he is also called, we first want to share some important news. At the end of March 2022, a couple of days after we recorded this interview, Lare was attacked and beaten at his home in Nigeria alongside his wife. The assailants stole valuables including phones, computers and a car. We strongly condemn this attack that almost certainly is linked to the anti-corruption and human rights work that Lara and his organization Hedda have been doing. If you would like to find out more about how to support Hedda, we encourage you to check out the links in the show notes. 
With this being said, let us listen to the interview we had with Lara and Nick on the move of Shell's headquarters. Welcome, you two. I'm really excited to have you on board. Uh, we have been trying to get you on an episode for a while, so I'm really excited that it's happening today. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having us. <laughs> um, so I will st start and jump uh, right into the first uh, question. And uh, of course, today we want to talk about the move of Shell, uh, the move of the headquarters from the Netherlands to the UK and what this means. Uh, and we thought that it would be useful to maybe first have a discussion on yeah, what the basic structure of a multinational corporation like Shell actually looks like. We know that um, Shell is a corporation uh, operating on a global scale. So I think for some people, it is not entirely clear what that means, like what the role of the headquarters is in comparison to, for instance, uh, subsidiaries uh, in other countries. So I'm curious to hear um, Nick and Lara, um, mm. if someone wants to uh, speak to that. Well, uh, well Shell, like, a, like most multinational oil companies, uh, is a huge sprawling empire. I mean, the last time I checked, it had, I think about 1,500 um, subsidiaries operating in about 70 different countries. And some of these subsidiaries are 100% owned by Shell. Uh, in others, Shell has a minority shareholding. That Anyone who wants to check them out, um, they're all listed in Shell's annual report, which you can get from its website. And the listing stretches over, I mean, it's over several pages. So Shell also operates through what are called joint ventures, where it teams up with another company to operate uh, an oil field, for example. If you take Nigeria, Shell has 18 different subsidiaries. All but two are pretty much 100% owned by Shell. The exceptions are uh, Nigeria LNG, which is a liquid nat natural gas um, uh, company and an associated shipping company where Shell owns about, I don't know, about a quarter of the shares. Um, and historically, it's, all, it's also operated a lot of joint ventures with other oil companies, although in recent years, it's divested many of those as it sought to move out of the Niger Delta, where many of those joint ventures operate. Okay, um, and what is the particular role of the headquarters? If you look at that, if could you explain that a little bit more? Ah, well, now we get into uh, controversy. Uh, I mean, Shell PLC, which is how it's now known, it used to be known as Royal Dutch Shell until last year when part of restructuring, it changed its name. Shell PLC is the what's known as the apex company in the group. It's the top dog in the group. Uh, now Shell insists that uh, Shell PLC or uh, Royal Dutch Shell as it was previously known is just a holding company. That's all it does is just take the profits from its subsidiaries and, and puts them into one pot. Uh, and it insists that each of its subsidiaries act, acts autonomously. I mean, 
there was a, a court case in 2016 in London and the company secretary um, told the court, and it's really worth quoting actually what he said. He said, um, RDS, in other words, Royal Dutch Shell, and I'm quoting, is a holding company. It's not an operating company. As a holding company, it does not have any employees. Royal Dutch Shell does not involve itself or otherwise intervene in its many hundreds of subsidiaries. So basically what it's, what's, it's saying is, you know, look, we have nothing to do with the operations in, um, in uh, uh, Nigeria. You as pension fund holders or whatever are investing in Royal Dutch Shell, but hey, you're just investing in a holding company. Uh, we don't even have any employees. Now, I mean, many people will find this a pretty incredible statement. Uh, and the company secretary went on to, to stress, he's, I mean, he said, um, each operating company is autonomous with its own properly constituted board of directors, its own management, its own business purpose, its own assets, and its own employees appropriate for that purpose. Its board and its management take the operational decisions necessary to run the business. Corporate separateness is respected and observed in the decision-making of the companies that comprise the Shell group of companies. So the, the, the official line is that Shell has a completely hands-off approach to its subsidiaries. It sets some group policies, but basically the operations are entirely down to the uh, subsidiaries in the different companies. And Shell has used this to argue that it can't therefore be sued for damages in say in London or in, in the Netherlands uh, for, for um, uh, injuries that are caused by its subsidiaries, including you know, oil spills in Nigeria and so on. Uh, now, I mean, in fact, this autonomy of the Shell subsidiaries is a complete fiction in my view. And the courts, in the Netherlands and in the UK have pretty much recognized this is the case. Uh, but that hasn't stopped Shell continuing to make the argument in other jurisdictions. Um, and in fact, there's a, a major damages case coming up in the UK where the degree of control exercised by Shell in Nigeria will be a key issue. I can go in, if you'd like, I can expand a bit on just how much control Shell headquarters actually does exercise over its subsidiaries. I think that would be interesting. And then after that, we can get into why they, why they might have moved, but do go on. Well, one of the cases that Lanre and I have been working on together with um, our Italian partner, Ray Common, um, and Global Witness in the UK, uh, is, is a case that we've been following for pretty much 10 years and it involves the acquisition by Shell and by ENI, the Italian oil multinational, of uh, an offshore oil field in Nigeria known as OPL245. And both companies were charged in Italy with corruption over the deal. They've denied that and they were recently acquitted, but this is now being appealed by the Italian prosecutor. Um, and Shell's also being investigated over the same case in the Netherlands, where the prosecutor has actually said there, are, um, there is a case to be answered. Um, but as a result of the prosecution in Italy, a vast number of internal Shell emails stretching over a decade 
came into the public domain. And uh, you can check them out on, a, on, uh, on, they are now in the public domain. You can check them out um, on the website and perhaps um, we can post the web, web address um, at the end of the post po will. podcast. Um, and these emails show that Shell in the Netherlands controlled the negotiations over this deal every step of the way. The Nigerian subsidiaries, who were the ones who actually signed off in the end, were only involved after the deal had been finalized. So I okay. think that email, that email chain, as I say, stretching over 10 years, really undermines and, uh, and shreds the notion that, that Shell is, Shell is a, a, these, these subsidiaries are completely autonomous. Thanks, Nick, for sketching this uh, relationship between the headquarters and the subsidiaries out very clearly. I think we can see that they're really um, trying to separate off responsibility onto the subsidiaries, but of course that relationship is is real and we and um, and one of responsibility. Could you could you maybe expand on why you think Shell might have moved? their headquarters from the Netherlands to the UK? Well, I, mean, I think it's pretty clear that the prime motive was uh, to avoid tax. Um, I mean, companies are taxed in the country where they're headquartered. And in the Netherlands, Shell has to pay a 15% withholding tax, uh, which is charged on the dividends it, it, um, it, it gives to shareholders. But in the UK, there's no such tax. So by moving from the Netherlands to the UK, Shell massively cut its tax burden. And the move to the UK, one should note, was also um, accompanied by other changes. And some of these are quite significant. Um, historically, Shell has had two types of shareholding. And it was because it was an um, Anglo-Dutch company. I mean, originally, it has sh Dutch shares and it had British shares, but it's now abandoned this structure, and it only has one type of share, which makes it much much easier uh, for the company when it comes to mergers and acquisitions. It is, and it is obviously intending to do mergers and acquisitions as it moves towards um, more emphasis on renewables. But uh, this simplification of its shareholding structure, I mean, could have been achieved, in my view, without moving to the UK. So I think, I think the um, tax advantages were probably the prime motivation. Right. And do you think movements in the Netherlands against Shell had anything to do with the move? Or do you think it's really about this, uh, this tax? Well, there have been loads of campaigns in, in the Netherlands and uh, the campaigns by Shell Must Fall, by Milieu Defensie, um, the ABP divestment campaign. And these have been, I mean, truly inspirational, I think. Um, I, I don't know how Landray views them from, from the Nigerian perspective, but I mean, I found them very insp inspirational. Um, and undoubtedly they've had an impact on Shell's so-called license to operate in the in the in the Netherlands, uh, and I'm equally sure that there are factors that 
would have been taken into account or are taken into account whenever Shell reviews its future. Whether they had an impact on the decision to relocate is not something I, I know have any knowledge about, but um, my instinct is that the decision was primarily about tax. Thanks. Um, yeah, I'm curious, Lara, if you could uh, speak a little bit more about what the move uh, of Shell actually means for the wider anti-Shell movement and different campaigns. Uh, and I'm hereby not only curious to hear more about campaigns in the Netherlands, but maybe, uh, yeah, groups that you were involved in. Um, yeah, what impact does it have? I think this is actually, uh, it is less of serious um, uh, information or concern for many people here uh, because basically it is immediately considered as, okay, so we have uh, the subsidiary here that we're dealing with. But at the same time, one significant point uh, that is of serious concern to an average advocate and activist um, here is the fact that the judgment of last year that actually uh, not only indicted Shell as uh, also connecting the headquarters with the subsidiaries, we should have given uh, a great opportunity for um, communities that are impacted by the activities of the subsidiaries of Shell. Uh, to proceed on actions against um, Shell uh, are now wondering what would be the implication of this for uh, such actions, either legal and political. And I can really agree uh, with um, Nick uh, in a very large you know, um, agreement to the extent that the movement in the Netherlands, uh, in terms of the social activism that is already building uh, significantly against the operations and activities of Shell uh, through its subsidiaries and also its uh, head office in Kroningen are uh, also part of the uh, considerations that uh, you can socially consider as um, responsible for the reconsideration of the location of Shell from also the final location from the Netherlands to the UK. And I think this would also be a good opportunity to review for researchers and social activists, you know, uh, what would make the UK uh, more fertile for the operations of the Royal Dutch Shell now changing from the Royal Dutch Shell to um, its new, new name. Uh, that is also of implication to the social movement uh, commitment to renewable energy, also the respect and protection of uh, communities where work uh, is done. Uh, and I think this would be the significant um, collaboration and consideration that should be coming from the uh, social movements, both in the United Kingdom, in the Netherlands, and some of the other countries like uh, Nigeria, where you have the subsidiaries of Shell, you know, operating. Well, what is uh, also clear is uh, either to the UK or wherever, it's been established that the head office or the headquarters of the company can uh, totally absorb itself 
of the operations and activities of the subsidiary. So that we really need to uh, not only uh, build upon, but ensure that it is asserted through the legal and political means that are necessary. Yeah. Yeah, I think you are mentioning some really interesting points. And as someone who has been involved in a couple of anti-shell campaigns, I think it also the move, whether it had an impact on individual campaigns or not, really depended a little bit on the strategies uh, groups were using. So I know for the Shamas 4 campaign, they were targeting the the AGM, which usually took place in in The Hague, which is now only going to happen to in in London, of course. So I think there these campaigns really have to reconsider their strategy and, and indeed maybe build new links uh, to groups in the UK. I'm curious, as yeah, you were more involved in the campaigns um, with the uh, OPL two four five oil field, and you're trying to bring Shell to court. So I think yeah, using this strategy, I'm curious whether this has an impact uh, for you, whether you would have to launch a new court case in the UK or whether you can proceed with uh, like the, yeah, the strategy you have used so far. I mean, this is um, part of what we would really have to uh, critically continue to engage and sustain in all possible ramification and the little efforts that are available to us as um, uh, advocates and, uh, and activists. We, we would want to see how this is also going to shape up going to the UK um, with, with the, um, not just the OPL 245, but also some other cases and issues that would emerge. Uh, but currently we have um, also considering and reviewing our strategy, um, knowing the fully well that it wasn't easy getting some of the activities and actions um, against Shell going while we were uh, engaging on the OPL 245 in the UK. Uh, and it took us uh, the Italian prosecutor to ignite as much as we, we have it now some of the review, investigation, and eventual prosecution are going on with Shell. The other part is that we still have uh, the engagement and also the prosecutor in the Netherlands um, investigating uh, some of the cases that are involving Shell. So uh, movement of Shell from the Netherlands to the UK is also something that we really need, we would really need to reconsider uh, and also review uh, and how much of how that would impact with the ongoing uh, investigation uh, of, uh, of the OPL 245 case and that is still actually ongoing uh, at our end. Lara, could you tell us a little bit more about the status of that case briefly? Okay, uh, with the uh, investigation, like you would also might have read in the public domain that at a point before COVID, uh, the uh, Dutch prosecutor already notified Shell that there were um, prima facie case for um, illegal action against uh, Shell over some of uh, issues and cases connected with the OPL 245. Um, unfortunately, there was the lockdown, and at the same time, there were also some legal moves uh, by Shell to also challenge the decision of the Dutch prosecutor uh, in terms of some of the documents that are 
uncovered uh, during investigation and are also form evidence uh, against Shell in, in the prosecution. Uh, in, in the, I think a decision has been taken at the first of the first instance and is ready on appeal uh, with the action of Shell. So we're waiting for that decision, uh, which can then um, be green light for the Dutch prosecutor to proceed uh, with the uh, expressed intention uh, for prosecution. Uh, in, the, in Milan, in Italy, yeah, the Dutch, um, sorry, the Italian prosecutor uh, lost the case at the court of first instance and is moved already to appeal. All the uh, defendants were uh, acquitted in, in, that, uh, in that decision by the Italian uh, court, but now he's gone to the court of appeal. So uh, they were waiting for the court to decide when the appeal process will commence. Uh, you possibly last week, but might be aware. Uh, so the civil action by Nigerian government uh, against the JP Morgan uh, is in progress in the UK. Uh, this is where the Nigerian government is challenging uh, JP Morgan. Uh, for transferring $801 million to private accounts and individuals other than the, the government or government accounts. Uh, the case is in progress. It actually came up uh, uh, from the um, 23rd of February. It started uh, and it's still in progress now. So we're waiting for that decision uh, by, by the UK court uh, on the, on the, on the um, action by the FRN. Okay. And so um, still waiting to see, you know, also how the move will impact what you do in the, or what happens in the Netherlands with the, with this uh, OPL 245 case. But um, yeah, so I want to zoom out for a second and then we'll circle back to movements and movement strategy in a little more depth. But uh, Nick, I'm wondering, you know, what does Shell's move to, of their headquarters to the UK mean in terms of challenging Shell? It shouldn't, it shouldn't mean uh, affected challenges to Shell at all. I mean, it's irrelevant to the challenges to Shell. Shell can be challenged wherever it operates, wherever it has Shell shareholders and wherever it's registered on a stock market and wherever it sells its products. And it is being challenged in the Niger Delta even though it's not headquartered in Nigeria. Its subsidiaries are on trial in Nigeria over the, over the alleged corruption in OPL 245. So regardless of what happens in the Netherlands case or the, or, or, or the Italian case, they are on trial in Nigeria. It's being, it's, it, it's been, has already been taken to court in Italy, even though it's not headquartered there. It's being challenged through the courts uh, in the in the US, or it has been challenged um, in the U in the US over its um, uh, past corruption, and indeed had a had a deferred prosecution agreement, even though it's not headquartered there. It's being challenged uh, on climate grounds all over the place, even though it's in countries which where it's not headquarters. It can be challenged wherever it sells petrol or other products through consumer boycotts. So the move to London, I mean, in my view, is really not significant in terms of efforts to challenge the company. It may mean some rearrangement of tactics for groups that have uh, traditionally uh, focused on 
the um, AGM in the Netherlands. But hey, you know, you can get on a, a Eurostar or, or a ferry and come to London. Um, so, I mean, for me, much more important than where its headquarters are located is the strength of local movements uh, that, are, that ha are seeking to challenge Shell. The strength of their alliances that they build, the strength of the tactics they use, and so on. And where they are strong and well organized, they threaten Shell. They can challenge Shell. The head basis of the headquarters is neither here nor there. Absolutely. We should all be continuing the fight. And I know we've heard whispers, you know, in the Netherlands from time to time that, you know, Shell has moved. So the, the, um, we no longer need to campaign against Shell, but I think your answer shows us that this is... Well, Shell has only moved some, some things. Right, it right. Is, I mean, there are still a lot of subsidiaries in Shell, including major um, components of its, of its um, uh, oil and gas industry that are, are based in Shell and will remain in Shell. I mean, mm -hmm. sorry, in the Netherlands, and will remain in the Netherlands. Absolutely. And I mean, there effects are both local and global. If we look at the uh, the NAM, the Nederlandse Aardolie Maatschappij, or like the, the gas extraction company in the north of the Netherlands in Groningen, I mean, this is still continuing and it's owned partly by Shell. So there is very much extraction and, and other activities happen, continuing to happen. Could you, um, could you tell us a little bit more about whether you think Shell's move to the UK, what what it could mean for a just transition? Well, I think the, the move to London tells us quite a lot about Shell as a company and how it intends uh, to ensure that any transition away from fossil fuels actually keeps things pretty much as they are. I mean, first it tells us that for all its talk about being a responsible corporate citizen, Shell's primary allegiance is not to the people of the countries where it operates, but to shareholder returns and profit. I, I mean, it saw an tax advantage in moving, and it moved. And its historical ties to the Netherlands, to communities in the Netherlands, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, meant absolutely nothing. It just packed its bags and went. Uh, and it may also be that it saw an advantage in moving to the UK because the move, according to some analysts, uh, may place it beyond the jurisdiction, well, certainly does place it beyond the jurisdiction of the Dutch court. So being headquartered in London may give Shell PLC, the old RDS, some protection against the recent um, Dutch ruling that, uh, as far as I recall, by 2030, Shell has to cut its CO2 emissions by 45 percent compared to um, 2019 levels. Um, but I mean, more, you know, more generally, um, I, I mean, it's very clear to me from the statements that have been made by Shell, not only a, at the time of the move, but, uh, but um, subsequently, <coughs> that um, oil and gas are going to remain the main means by which Shell makes its profits for the foreseeable future. I mean, yes, it's investing in renewables, so-called, um, but it's funding these investments through oil and gas revenues. And it's insistent that that is the way that, the only way it can fund them. 
And the, I mean, the total absurdity of net zero, which has effectively allows you to go on producing, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, sorry, the, uh, the absurdity of net zero, which effectively allows you to go on extracting oil and gas and burning it, so long as you have offsets or you commit to technologies that are yet completely undeveloped, like um, carbon capture and, um, and uh, storage, means that uh, Shell will be able to go on produce, uh, ex exploiting oil and gas for years to come. And I think that that is the expectation that, that activists should have. Yeah. So, for me, the move to London actually reveals Shell for what it is, a company driven by profit, which is unwilling to shift, which is totally willing to shift around the globe in order to take advantage of wherever a regulatory regime offers the highest rates of returns to its investors. And it's for that reason that I cannot see Shell, wherever it's headquartered, as actually being part of any just transition that's worthy of the name. That's very clear. I mean, certainly not in its current form. For me, a just transition encompasses more than simply moving away from fossil fuels. It's about moving away from capitalist forms of production and from capitalist forms of accumulation. And that's just not on the cards for companies like Shell and other multi multinationals. I think that's eminently clear from um, from what from the scene we've sketched today. Landa, I just want to come to you uh, to to just you know return to what you said about you know I don't think that things this shift really affects us um, or movements in Nigeria against Shell. Can you can you expand on that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, because the the company, which is the Shell subsidiary that is directly connected with the operations in Nigeria, is still here and is still operating. So um, the other subsidiaries that are also uh, either with full ownership of Shell or, or partial ownership are still operational here. Um, the effect would, would mean to the extent that um, challenging some of the activities or operations of uh, Shell would only move from possibly going to the Netherlands that now to the UK, where it is actually far more expensive to uh, undertake some legal action um, in, in the UK. And that is why I, I think it would be important to do some social research on the implication of you know, uh, getting Shell to be accountable. Uh, I, either it is going to be better or, or it is going to be stiffer uh, with, with the movement from the Netherlands to the UK, uh, it's important to start also looking at, you know, um, what, what implications are there uh, for the operational accountability of uh, some of the multinational companies uh, when there's this kind of a relocation from, you know, uh, the historical uh, um, headquarters of, of a company like Shell. Uh, to then move to another location. It, it is not just what you can uh, dismiss as just a, a natural movement uh, that is not really uh, informed by uh, necessary issues, conditions that is worthy of investigation by uh, people who are concerned 
about the operations and also accountability of the company. So for, for organizations, activists, and communities in Nigeria, uh, and in other countries where you have subsidiaries operating, the, the first point of action uh, is to engage them at the company level or the operational level uh, in countries where they are domiciled, like Nigeria. Uh, and the next level of action is to see how that is um, taken on board uh, at the new headquarters. Uh, like I said, uh, it's a different ball game now uh, because the social movement in the UK uh, is not compared to what you have in the Netherlands uh, in terms of challenging the headquarters of, um, of Shell uh, and some other multinational companies uh, operating uh, in the Netherlands or in the UK. So the difference would be the need to start also finding new alliances uh, and at the same time building a, a total movement uh, that can then assist with holding now the headquarters responsible and also using the legal instruments uh, that are available within the, the, the system to, to have uh, that level of uh, accountability. The, the, the last one would be also engaging the embassies in Nigeria. Before now, it's been the embassy of the Netherlands, you know, taking responsibility for facilitating uh, some level of interaction and reconciliation between the committee, uh, the communities and, and Shell. So now it's moving to the UK um, with the UK system or the diplomatic circle be responsive to the um, plight of the communities and also take responsibility for um, a company uh, headquarters and headquarters in the UK. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different question and a different kettle of a separate kettle of fish to to deal with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think your your last statements really tie into actually our next question that we had, and that was really what does the move of Shell mean for our movement strategy? And Nick, of course, has said like you can take action against Shell wherever you are in the world. You doesn't have to, you don't have to be located in. Um, in now in London or in the UK where the headquarters are, but I'm still, yeah, very intrigued by you what you just said, Lara, and maybe you can, because our question was, is there a particular responsibility uh, still of for anti-share campaigns in the headquartered countries to take actions? I, I think, like I said earlier, um, if the, the bird is learning to fly without passion. I think the shooters should also learn to shoot without missing. So it is now uh, the duty for social activists um, and defenders to start building uh, a stronger network. This is another opportunity to see how uh, we bring some of our contacts and also activists and partners in the UK up to speed with what has been happening. So we also, like Nick said, it is fine. Actions can still be taken uh, in other jurisdictions other than the UK uh, to try and bring um, Shell to account. But, but like I said, uh, Shell must have considered quite a number of other variables and factors before deciding to move to the UK. If there is 
uh, really no significant difference, <clears throat> both in terms of uh, finances, like the tax issues, um, social issues, uh, that they, they possibly might not really be bothered as such. But if it's taking the decision uh, to move to the UK, it is not impossible that there are more favorable conditions uh, in terms of perception and also social relationship. Uh, now it is uh, our own responsibility to start building uh, the consciousness and also awareness level uh, of the new hosts or the headquarters uh, to understand what has been the track record of the company in terms of some of the um, concerns that we have in communities where they operate and also the human relationship that they cultivate uh, with um, stakeholders in their operational chain. Uh, and that, for me, uh, would be very critical. And at the same time, it would be, like I said, to see how uh, the diplomatic circle is likely to provide the necessary um, mechanisms, connections, and uh, for ensuring that there's the uh, process of uh, holding accountable uh, the shared operations and at the same time communicating concerns uh, to the law enforcement in the UK, regulatory agencies in the UK, and also the company itself in the United Kingdom. Thanks, Lara. And as we wrap up, could you um, tell us you know, what are the next steps for the OPL 245 case and in the spirit of building this network of solidarity, what can movements in the UK, for example, do to support? Yeah, um, we really don't want to lose uh, the movement that is already building in the Netherlands before we even get to the UK. So we want to sustain that in the Netherlands and also um, ensure that the understanding is uh, far and wide that the movement from the Netherlands uh, does not really change you know, uh, the commitment and also responsibilities towards ensuring uh, accountability for sharing. Movement to in the U in the UK, like you said, is also very important and very critical. And this, we're also looking at how much of who are those that we can work with uh, in terms of both state and non-state actors. I mean, what has been the experience in the Netherlands uh, would not be the same pleasant experience that we would want to see in the in the United Kingdom. So for that, we would want to see how some of the regulatory agencies, the parliament, and also uh, some of the bureaucrats are up to task in terms of ensuring that the operations of Shell is not allowed to negatively impact in communities, uh, either in the UK or outside the UK, going forward. And Moving forward beyond that would be for us to also take on board some of um, social activists, uh, especially also in the, in the legal uh, environment of the UK, where it is actually very expensive to undertake uh, legal action. So start seeing how we can build um, some socially oriented lawyers who would be available to do some pro bono uh, support, also public interest litigation. Uh, that can assist in bringing some of the um, 
atrocities of uh, companies like Shell uh, before the judicial mechanisms. Uh, and that we would want to also move forward by getting uh, some, some of the uh, uh, civil society organization, international and local NGOs in the UK uh, to also start, you know, uh, engaging Shell uh, and setting the minimum bar and standard uh, for its operation uh, in the UK and outside the UK. Thanks, Lange. It sounds like there are many different actors to engage um, to make this a success from lawyers to movements to holding also government officials accountable in both the UK and the Netherlands and beyond. So um, I just want to open it up for last comments and then we'll wrap up. So do you, if you have anything to add, Nick, you can go first and then we'll go to Lange. Yeah, I mean, I, I, there's another aspect of where where next steps around OPL 245. And I'm, um, Landry can speak to this about this better than I can, but I mean, I'll just raise it now and maybe he can add comments. But um, because, because the Nigerian government in particular took such a strong stand over um, uh, the corruption cases around OPL 245, they refused to convert the original oil prospecting license, OPL, into an oil mining license, which is the next stage of its de development. And under the terms that the original license was granted back in 2011, Enny and Shell had 10 years in which to develop the field and get a, um, a, an OML, an oil mining license, or the license would expire. Now the license has expired without them getting an oil mining license because Ni Nigerian government, President Buhari in particular, said he was not gonna make any decision on, on the field until all the court cases had been completed. So the license has expired and the court cases are still going through the courts. And the Nigerian civil society, particularly environmental, but also um, human rights groups have, uh, have, are now demanding that the oil should be kept in the ground and that President Buhari should seek an international fund to be set up that would compensate Nigeria for the money that it wouldn't have, it wouldn't get, in order that that money should be kept, uh, that oil should be kept in the in the ground. And I think, and and uh, that that funds would be used for a transition away from an oil and gas economy. In other words, diversify the economy, and that would have. Um, major political ramifications. I think it would do a great deal to to uh, uh, undermine the networks of corruption that really uh, have developed in Nigeria since since oil um, was first developed there. But um, Lanre, I'm sure, can add a great deal more to that. Please go ahead, uh, Lanre. Yeah, I think actually. Uh, on that sufficiently enough, uh, but more importantly is that we're looking at the possibility and hopefully uh, the conclusion of the criminal trials that are also ongoing on uh, ongoing in Nigeria uh, against some of the suspects and those identified to have been connected uh, with the OPL two four five um, either by the allegation of uh, corruption, money laundering use of office um but the 
the situation mentioned by Nick is the fact that the Nigerian government is already uh, challenging in the in in Italy to have uh, about 1.6 billion dollars uh, returned to the government, uh, and is also asking for the 801 million dollars uh, from JP Morgan in the UK. Uh, either with the or with both of the compensation uh, that is sorted, so sufficiently, the country must have uh, been compensated uh, for what was the anticipated uh, revenue from the uh, sale of the OPL 245 if uh, the country is successful with the persecution uh, that is undertaken in the Netherlands and also, I mean, sorry, in Italy and also in the UK. Um, that informed our level of um, new advocacy for the oil to stay in the ground uh, by Nigeria negotiating either under the UNFGPC or the United Nations to have uh, that uh, discussion uh, for there to be compensatory payments that can allow for uh, the, I mean, we don't want to embrace the net zero agenda, uh, where we want to see that the oil is granted and Nigeria is uh, compensated to the value of what is expected to derive from the oil field over the period of 25 uh, minimum of 25 years and allow it to keep the oil in the ground uh, and then it can be supported to um, justly trans transition from fossil fuel uh, to clean energy. Uh, that should be part of the commitment. It, it shouldn't be just some fund thrown to the government to be used for some other, you know, um, uh, frivolous expenses uh, that are associated with governments when they get this. But this can be tied to some very serious uh, sustainable development uh, within the country that also can affect or support the communities that are uh, negatively impacted by the oil exploration and exploitation process. Thanks, Lara. I think uh, organizing to make sure that a just transition fund gets set up in Nigeria is a great example of the local organizing that is really necessary in addition to transnational organizing. You know, both are really important in the fight for justice against Shell and the oil industry at large. So I think today we've learned that the fact that Shell has moved the company's headquarters might mean movements need to shift strategy in terms of where to campaign and for what exact issues. We need to understand a little bit more about uh, Shell's legal accountability in the UK and how that might shift court case strategies. However, this move does not mean that organizing against Shell in the Netherlands should stop simply because they have moved headquarters. Not at all. We need to grow the movement against Shell in the UK, but organizing at the subsidiary level from Nigeria to the Netherlands is super important. To our listeners, if you like the show, please follow and like us on your podcast platform and join us for our next episode. Check out our show notes to learn more about Shell's headquarter move, the OPL 245 case, and how to support the important work Lara and his colleagues are doing at Hadda. To find out more about a future beyond Shell, visit futurebeyondshell.org.